Welcome to the resource room. I'm Amanda, the blogger and TPTer behind the Primary Gal. As a special education teacher, you are always supporting others, students, parents, general education teachers. But who is supporting you? That's where this podcast comes in. It's my mission to give you the help and support that you need. I'll be sharing my tips, tricks, research-based strategies, and professional development. I'm here to help you grow and learn as a resource room teacher. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode number four. In this episode, we will be talking all about visual and auditory perceptual disabilities. And I want to start off this episode by just giving a quick synopsis of what a visual perceptual disability might look like or what an auditory perceptual disability might look like if you if a child is experiencing that. So we'll start with visual. Visual is basically that something about the way the eyes and the brain work together, something is not perceived, that perceptual part, is not perceived in the correct way. So they just don't process visual information in the same way that say your average child or your average person might perceive that information. And now that you know visual, we can easily infer then what auditory perceptual would be, which is just the way that we are processing sounds through our, through our brain, what we're hearing, how we're processing that information. Over the course of the next few episodes, I'm going to talk about several different types of perceptual disabilities. And not that they're not important, not that they aren't going to um, make math a little bit harder for some of our students, but I really think that visual and auditory are some of the biggest kind of players in the game here. And that's why I'm starting with these um, or with these two and talking about kind of then what are we going to see in our students? Because I think it's going to play such a big role in their success or their frustration when it comes to doing math, whether it be in the general education classroom, whether it be in your resource room, either way, we're going to see difficulty in our students and we need to be aware of what to look for and what to watch for so that we know how to help our kids. So in this episode, I will be sharing 11 things, 11 characteristics that you might see in your students who have visual or auditory perceptual disabilities. And then I'm going to offer just some quick and simple strategies that you can help your students kind of know, experiment with, understand, kind of learn their own style. And these are just kind of my quick brainstormed, I've done this with this kid or that with that kid. What can you do? Um, but I'm sure that whatever I share, there are probably like 10 more things that are just as good or will accomplish that same mission. So my goal for you is to hear these 11 things and be like, oh, that student, that's probably why they're struggling with this. Maybe I could try what she said, or maybe I could try this. That would be a great idea for helping them kind of overcome this obstacle. And for a lot of our kids, we need to be the ones offering some of these coping strategies. Some students figure it out on their own but some students need to be explicitly taught a coping strategy for that area of difficulty. And so that's what I wanna share today. 
So our first characteristic of somebody with a visual perceptual disability is that they are often going to lose their place a lot. So here's an example. Let's say you have a student who is looking at their math book, their math page, whatever um, activity you're working on, and they see four plus three. Okay, so they're gonna go to their hundreds chart. They're gonna use their fingers. They're gonna use whatever strategy to figure out, okay, what is four plus three? Now they know, okay, four plus three is seven. And now they go back to their worksheet or back to the math book or back to the math game, whatever it is, to write down seven and they don't even know where four plus three is on the page because they have already lost their place. This is likely the result of a visual perceptual disability. And so something that you could do to help them is to make it more of a fun activity in which, okay, I'm gonna give you this bingo marker or I'm gonna give you this little eraser that looks like a teddy bear or whatever you want to use, but some object, you can make it as fun, as child specific, whatever you might think that would engage them without being too childish and have them put that on that particular spot. So now whenever they come back, they're not trying to process, oh, four plus three is seven, four plus three, where do I put the seven? I need to write seven, where does it go? Now all they have to do is look for the bingo marker, look for the teddy bear eraser, look for the eraser that looks like a grape, whatever it is. Maybe you have some options. Um, actually, I've seen on Instagram a lot some um, desk pets where kids can like earn them. That would be a privilege. Those same little erasers would be absolutely perfect for marking the place of where a student is working. And they're gonna think it's really cool to get to have their desk pet right there. Maybe it's their math pet and it just sits on whatever problem they're going to be returning to. So that now they're not trying to remember four plus three is seven, 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 seven. I can't forget seven. And then also try to figure out where the heck I'm at on my page. And by the time I figure out where I'm at, I've already forgotten that seven is the answer. So something losing their place, we can help them with that. If you're working in a small group, sometimes as the teacher, it's easy to be like, oh, look right here, you were doing four plus three. Um, but in a general education classroom, or even I have one math group that has seven students, there's no way I can keep track of what all seven students are doing and where they are and where they have to write their answer. So something very, very simple, put a bingo marker wherever you're going to come put that answer could help them cope with the difficulty of losing their place. Characteristic number two is kind of similarly related to number one. And that is you might notice that kids are skipping parts or maybe even entire problems. And think we could often chalk this up to laziness. You're not doing what you were asked. This is what you're supposed to do. You can't hang with us. You know, like we're all on number four. Why are you here? You know, some of those things that I myself would say to students like, come on, we're here. They're not intentionally working ahead of you. They're not intentionally skipping problems. They're just truly lost and they're just going, oh, let's do number four because that problem looks good to me. Their brain doesn't quite know where to go back to. So if you keep in mind, we could use a bingo marker. We could use those desk pets. We could give them a place. This is where we're going to go every single time. 
Um, I could also see maybe some highlighting being successful here. Like, okay, guys, right now we're working on the blue problem. The blue problem is where we're going to. Put your answer on the blue problem and use something besides more numbers, more information um, for them. That could also add more confusion. But experiment. How can we get them to know this is what we're doing and this is the order when they're struggling to visually process all that information? Characteristic number three is also visual in nature. And so with this characteristic, students might be able to or might be unable to locate relevant information on their own. So let's say you're working on a word problem and you might ask the students, okay, are there any words that might tell us if we're going to add or subtract? Or we might say, man, I'm really wondering how many red flowers did she have? Or does anybody see where it says he gave away you know, a certain number of stickers. You're asking them to go back into that text or go back into whatever information and see what was that. You're you're trying to get them to scan and look for relevant information. And word problems is what comes to mind. But you know, this could really be so many things. Are we going to add or subtract? Um, you know, just looking at basic symbols. Or can you find the number that is bigger or smaller? Just being able to locate that information on their own might be difficult. And you know, could very well be, all right, I need you to point to number 10. That could be hard. A whole eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with all kinds of information and you want me to find the number 10? That might be hard for some of our kids who visually are struggling to process information. So for me, my ideas, for coping with this strategy would be that I like to use um, the little reading screens where um, they're the colored overlays and using that to focus on specific things. Oh, let's put it here. Does it have red flowers? Oh, we're looking for how many blue flowers? We're looking for how many stickers? And letting them focus in on one thing. We don't need to focus on all the text on all the page or all the words in this word problem, we're looking for one particular thing. Or maybe if it's something more simple, maybe it's making sure that they have a good example. Okay, on her page, she's pointing to number 10 and that's at the bottom of the page. I don't need to look at the top. She's pointing and it's at the bottom. Okay, I'm gonna look at the bottom of my page. Giving them clue words like that. Okay, this word or this number or this letter, this information is near the top. Giving them some of that so that they can start to locate some of that information on their own would be helpful. Even to me, a little sympathy and understanding that this could be really hard for them. Or we think, point to number 10. Come on, that's easy. We all know what number 10 looks like. No one is disagreeing that they do or don't know what number 10 looks like, but imagine the overwhelm of all of that text on a page. And so sometimes even just giving a little grace and some patience can go a long way. Characteristic number four is all about copying, okay? So we might have students who are attempting to copy from the board, copy from a book that's in front of them, copy from somebody sitting next to them, whatever the case might be. Maybe they're even copying information from their Chromebook or their iPad onto a piece of paper. 
all of that can be very, very challenging. And what that might look like is it looks like they're not paying a bit of attention. And really, they're, they're trying so hard to pay attention, but their brain literally does not know where to go. Every single time that they go from the paper to the screen to the paper to the screen, it's like starting over. They can't return. Where, okay, where are my eyes supposed to go? Now I've got to reprocess all this information all over again just to find out, oh, my next letter is, you know, B, or I'm supposed to write the number 32 or whatever that might be. So for me, strategies for this, um, I, I'm just going to say could be a little controversial. I don't think we should just never require kids to copy from the board because if we literally never do it, we're never going to get better at it. But I've also seen some teachers or some scenarios where kids are spending so much of their day copying from the board that it's so frustrating for them. So we can think of this as, again, a handful of strategies. One might work for one child, one might work for another child, and you might have to think of something all on your own for someone else. But just some ideas to get your wheels turning. Depending on the help, the support, what's available, maybe that student is not required to copy some of that information. To me, obviously, that is not ideal. We don't want kids to just not participate. However, sometimes it's not worth the frustration. If behaviors are present, we don't wanna just create behaviors because they have to copy. We don't wanna create frustration or even like a, a, just a feeling of I'm so stupid or I'm so incapable or why can't I do this? Everybody else can do this. We don't wanna create those feelings in our kids. So maybe they just don't do it. Maybe there's someone available who can copy some of that onto a piece of paper where then they would be able to use a marker, a finger, something that is closer so that they can point to those words and they can keep track on their own. Um, for me, I have seen students who really need to be explicitly taught. If I'm copying from a book, one hand is my writing hand and I'm going to be using that to hold my pencil or hold my marker or whatever and the other hand is used to point. And that might sound so silly and so obvious, but some of our kids will not get there. Some of our kids are not going to think, okay, I'm gonna point right here, and that's the next word that I'm gonna write. I'm gonna point right here, that's the next number that I'm copying, whatever. So in my mind, reduce the number of times where they have to write, but you also need to start teaching them ways to copy from the board, copy from a piece of paper. You don't have to eliminate all scenarios, but definitely have a good balance of both. We don't want frustration, but we don't want, I never get better because I'm never required to do it either. So to me, your strategy is figure out a way to explicitly teach them how to copy. And then, and again, I always try to be honest about myself. I am a little bit impatient. I often am like, come on, come on, come on. Um, so we have to realize how hard this is for some of our kids and give them the time, be patient with them, and don't overlook the struggle and chalk it up to I'm not paying attention. Don't chalk it up to you never focus on what we're doing or, you know, you've got to try. Well, they are. It just comes across as I'm not concentrating. I'm not paying attention but really there's a bigger problem or there's a bigger struggle there than I can't pay attention. But it, 
it might look like that. It might look like I'm not paying attention to anything that you're asking me to do. But really, maybe a strategy would help them to be able to copy. Characteristic number six is students might mix up problems or mix up numbers. And, you know, oftentimes, actually, um, just today, we I always write our car numbers. I go out and I get our first 15 car rider numbers so that we can get like a head start on lining kids up. And today, one of our car rider numbers was 239. And on the board, I wrote 293. And the lady was like, we don't have a car right now, 293. I'm like, I, I probably meant 239. Like, sorry, my, you know, and sometimes we'd be like, oh, that's my dyslexic brain. I'm mixing up numbers. And while maybe that's it, but maybe it's also just this visual perceptual disability. Maybe for me, the real reason was I was probably a hot mess of field day and I'm running here and running there and trying to hurry and I'm rushed. But for our kids, when we see this, it could totally be all of those things. But it could be, oh my gosh, she mixes up these numbers all the time. She's got all the right numbers, but they're in all the wrong order. And to me, that is more a visual perceptual disability where just what comes out or what you write or what you're interpreting from the paper just gets a little jumbled. For me, a good strategy for this, really I have two and it's pretty much the same thing, but are we talking about whole group or small group or small group versus one-on-one? -on -one? And that is read it from the page and say it out loud. If we're in a small group, somebody can read it out loud and say, it's 239. And then whenever you go to write that, you just said 239. You're no longer relying on that visual. Now you're just kind of working memory. Okay, 239. Okay, write that down. Plus 142. Okay, you said that out loud. Process, process that information. Does that match up with what you have? Okay, right? 142. So being able to verbalize that allows you to self-check or even you to check them or that student to self-check like, wait a minute, that's not 293, that's 239. And be able to kind of process that information in a different way. Now, obviously, if we have 30 kids in a classroom, we don't want all of them saying 239, 142. We, we would be after the kids so much for saying some of those things, but... There's no reason why they can't whisper that to themselves. 239. Okay, write that down. 142. Okay, write that down. They can still process that information with a whisper instead of saying it out loud and creating a lot of noise. But it's definitely something that can allow them to think about and process that information before they write it down. Also, it just slows their brain down a little bit. If I'm struggling to process that information and I automatically build in five seconds to think about it or to say it or kind of self-check, that might just be the extra time that my brain needs. Our next characteristic really, really builds off of that and is going kind of same idea there. So we could copy the numbers incorrectly like 239 and 293 or we could write down 239 from number one where I'm supposed to be, but grab a whole different number like 153 from a totally different problem. Because again, 
hearing some of the other things. I might be losing my place. I might be having difficulty knowing where my eyes are supposed to return on the page. I might be struggling to just process that information that I'm seeing. And so I might see my students just mixing up problems. I've got one number from here and one number from there, and that's not a problem on the page. But guess what? I just made it a problem because I pulled from here and pulled from there. And so I could be copying problems down wrong or I could be completely mixing up some of those problems. So be aware of that. Again, when we're seeing this in our students, there could be times where we're, we or even general education teachers who don't understand that could be reprimanding students like, oh my gosh, get with us. I said to write this down or I said we're on number four. They're trying, but it's hard. So just something to kind of be aware of, be on the lookout. And then when you start to think, okay, should we be testing this student for a learning disability or a cognitive disability? Being able to say, I'm seeing a weakness in this area is important. So just something to be aware of and be on the lookout for. Our next characteristic is such a common characteristic. We see it all the time. And again, this is something that a lot of times we say, oh, maybe they have dyslexia. Maybe, you know, this is a characteristic of dyslexia and it is. So I don't wanna discount that, but sometimes it's not always dyslexia. It could be more this visual perceptual disability, just the way our brain is interpreting what our eyes are seeing. And so we might see numbers being written backwards. And so to me, some of the really, really common ones are two, three, five, six, and nine. Not that kids don't write other numbers backwards, but some of those like zero to 10, those five are the most common, two, three, five, six, and nine. So be on the lookout for that. Now, if you have followed me for long on any platform, you know that I love to use a hundred chart. We can use it for addition, subtraction, finding patterns, um, even counting by fives for telling time or money, all of those things we can use a hundred chart if we need it. But we can also use a hundred chart to check, is my three backwards? or to copy, here's what a nine looks like. I can copy that. So for me, that is a really good strategy, something that they're already probably using and familiar with, and then now we can just teach them. Ooh, I just wrote a three, and I know I write threes backwards all the time. I'm going to check that. Or here's the number five, or I need to write the number five. What does that look like again? Am I starting on this side of the box or this side of the box? Things like that, that we can just teach them and train them. Now, some kids, they don't have this difficulty. They are literally never going to need this prompt or this strategy. But some of our kids will need this prompt. They will need this strategy. And we have to kind of know it, see it, and help them with it when it comes up. Another characteristic that you might see in your students, and for this, it could really be because of something that is more visual, or it could be something that is more auditory. And so that would be mixing up our teen numbers, okay? So we've all heard little kindergartners who are counting so well, and they get to number 12 and then they say 20, 30, 40, things like that. Maybe they get all the way up to 20 and then they're like, hmm, 
30, 40, 50. They're just confused. And so to support this, we can give them lots of visuals. You know I love, love a hundreds chart. Um, having something that they can have at their desk, even if on their name tag, they could have a hundreds chart or something so that they can see those numbers. And depending on, is it more visual in nature that they're not seeing 13 as 13 or they're not hearing 13, the difference between say 13 and 30, you might address those differently. I think that a lot of our kids this processing difficulty, we need to slow it down for them to give them time to process that. If every single day you count from the 100 chart, that's wonderful. And I do think that's a good routine, a good practice. But if you always do it so fast that they're not hearing those differences, hearing and seeing at the same time would be ideal, then they're never going to hear or understand that She's not saying 32 times. She's saying 13 and she's saying 30. And those are different. They look different. They sound different. So be on the lookout for kids who counting is hard, maybe because of what they're hearing. Therefore, that's what they're repeating. Or maybe it's because in their mind, their visual memory is remembering or not remembering something a little bit different. So definitely use visuals to support that slow things down. And to me, working with some kids one-on-one -on -one to see their struggle with, say, going from 12 to 30 because they think they said 20 might be different than somebody else's error. And so taking time to really see, is it a visual problem or is it an auditory problem? Our next characteristic is when students carry the wrong number or carry it to the wrong place when regrouping. So we know regrouping is hard, whether we are adding and regrouping or subtracting and regrouping. Either way, things get hard. Um, for my group of second graders, for example, we they were doing pretty well with two-digit numbers. And so we moved up to three-digit, kind of this tail end of the year, preparing for third grade. This is what we're going to see. And it's hard. It's so much visually for kids to take in. And so it's really important for them to get in the habit of writing down or knowing, okay, I have the number 16. What am I going to do with the one? And what am I going to do with the six? And helping them understand, okay, we're going to scoot over one column. And that's where I'm going to carry the one. The six goes below. So again, kind of different problems could be manifesting themselves or you could see different reasons. So I have a couple of different strategies here. So let's say a student is really struggling to know, do I put the one down at the bottom? Do I carry the one? Do I put the six down at the bottom? Do I carry the six? What am I doing? For me, I like to use a lot of phrases over and over and over again. And so we might say something like, okay, I have 16. I'm going to write down the six, carry the one. Then they are never saying carry the six. They're never saying carry the five. We literally say every day, eight problems in a row, carry the one, carry the one, carry the one. So hearing that might help them know we need to carry the one. And if they would put a bigger number up there, guys, do we ever carry a six? No, we carry the one. 
Now, obviously, in upper grades, you very well could carry a six. If we're talking about multiplication, you definitely could carry a six. But when we're just learning, we need to realize we're carrying the one because that's what's in the tens place in that number. Another strategy, which I love and I use a lot, is we write down what I'll say a tiny 12 or write down a tiny 17 or a tiny 18, whatever that answer happens to be for our problem, let's say in the ones column. We'll write down that answer and then we draw a line from let's say the number is 18. We draw a line from the eight and we put it down below. We draw a line from the one that goes to the next column. And so we draw those little arrows and then we move the numbers. And then we go to the next column. And we're going to, let's say we get the number 16. Well, we're gonna put a line from our six down to the actual answer of the problem. And we're gonna draw a line to the next column carrying our one. So definitely having just some of those things that we do them over and over. We write our tiny two or our tiny 12. What are we gonna do with our two? What are we going to do with our one? Things like that really help kids just develop a practice. This is what we do. Now, later in the year we transition and I, I don't do this all at once. I might say, hey, you're getting really good at this. If you don't wanna write a tiny 17, you don't have to. I think you know what number goes down below and what number we carry. But for others, I still expect them to write that because they're still confusing that or misunderstanding. Okay, I can't write 12 down below. I can't just write two down below. There's more to that. So definitely that just creates a good habit, a good practice that reminds them where do those numbers go. Now, if you have students who they know they have to carry a one or they know where the 12 goes, but guess what? They're working in the ones and all of a sudden they carry that one to the hundreds column. I like to use a ruler, especially like if it could be a translucent ruler where we can kind of slide it over, we can still see the rest of the problem. And then again, kind of going with that visual, they're losing their space, their place, they don't know where things are going. Using a ruler really allows them to slide over one step at a time. Sometimes I'll even use my hundred chart and I'll cover it up. Okay, we don't care about any of this. We're just looking at this problem right here. Okay, now we know the answer to that. We can slide our hundreds chart over one column and it just helps kids take it one step at a time. And then if it's all covered up, you're not gonna carry the number from the ones column over to the hundreds because it's covered up. So just kind of forcing them to take it one step at a time. And that doesn't have to be a lifelong thing. That doesn't have to be something that we do all of third grade. It just has to be why we train our brain. Where does that number go next? Where are we carrying the one? Um, I have one girl in particular, let's say the answer is going to be 1,234. That 12 is going to be the result of let's say nine plus three in the hundreds column. Every single time she wants to take that one in the 12 and instead of putting it as 1,000, she wants to start over and take it to the ones. And so she just doesn't understand that place value and where things belong. And now she thinks we need to have a one above every single column. And so we're working on 
understanding that place value, but also understanding we just keep moving over and now we don't have anything in the thousands. We're gonna create a number that is so big it's in the thousands. Some of those things, just not visually understanding what all of those things represent is something that needs to be taught or we have to take the time to practice. Characteristic number 10 is also very visual in nature. Are you noticing a pattern here? So many of these things are visual in nature. And this comes down to um, students having difficulty subitizing, okay? And I feel like I'm always saying that word wrong. I feel like every time I hear it, people say it differently. So if you say it, sub, I don't know, forgive me, okay? But basically, that is the ability to look at an arrangement of dots and realize, hey, that's six. Think of if you were to roll dice and you roll a six, your brain knows that that's a six. You don't have to count all of the dots. You know that's six. If you roll a five, you don't have to count five dots. You know, hey, that's what five looks like. Now, for some of our kids that might be easier with smaller numbers and more difficult with higher numbers, Especially, we don't often see dots arranged in nine or 10, things like that often. So you might have to count. You might have to think, well, there's three sets of three. So three, six, nine, oh, that's nine dots. And they have to process that information. And so when we're talking about difficulties with visual perception, it would only make sense that this would be challenging for them. So what they're seeing isn't quite clicking to, oh man, I bet that's four. Because all dice, every time I look at them, has a dot in each corner, that's four. It takes them a much longer time to build up that development and that just kind of sight, that sight bank of, okay, I know what this looks like. And because this relies so much on memorization, I feel like coming up with strategies is very, very difficult for this. So um, I have a couple of suggestions and if you have more, I would love to hear them because I think this is a challenge. So my first strategy is to dedicate more time to practicing subitizing. So if you see, hey, this is a real weakness for you, you're not noticing that, hey, this is four, this is three, this is seven, this is 10 spend more time working on that skill. Maybe that's flashcards, which to be honest, you can Google and find for free. Maybe that is um, just working on rolling dice, working on now two dice, three dice, whatever it might require, just to work on seeing that over and over and over again. Because we know uh, oftentimes, say with sight words or with letters, Students can get it, they just need more exposures to that. So maybe just increasing some time that you're dedicating to that would be helpful. Or maybe it's that we need to kind of have a different strategy that's not relying so much on our memory, especially we know visual is difficult. So maybe we rely on another skill. Maybe they're good at counting by twos, counting by threes, counting by fives. So maybe we start employing some of those things. Okay, when you see numbers, I want you to see if you can group two together. So if I had five, like the number five on dice, I could see two on this side, two on this side. So I could say two, four, 
ooh, what would be one more? That's five. So maybe we need to use some other strategies to realize, okay, we're not going to automatically know that it's five, but I am really good at counting by twos. And then start to, to use that with six, same thing. I could say, okay, here's two, four, six. I've got six. And go right down the dice. Um, I have some large foam dice, which I think would work really, really well for this. That way kids can really pick up their fingers, touch them, two, four, six. Or here I have two on this side of the die. I have two on this side, two, four. It would allow them to really touch it. Um, even some really large, like uh, blow up dice, anything that would make it engaging and fun, but would allow them to see what do those look like. We need to start seeing them, find a way to count and, and master that. It is hard, um, especially when we know memorization is so key. That in, in the whole kind of nutshell of it is the purpose, is we're memorizing what those look like. So that would be very difficult for kids with visual perceptual disabilities. Now, I'm going to wrap up with what I'm really even struggling to put into words, okay? The last characteristic is easy to describe, but my strategies, I am really struggling, I'll be honest. So our last characteristic is very much auditory in nature. And so this would be the student who is just always behind. They're struggling to hear and comprehend what you're saying. It doesn't mean that they don't understand. It doesn't mean that they can't or won't. It means they need more time. Now, think about your school day. Think about their general education class. Think about their small group time with you. For me, I have 30 minutes with my kids for reading and about 15 for math. It is rush, 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 rush. It's also very auditory. I'm telling him this, I'm telling him that. Another student is telling us a sight word. We're stretching out things together. It is so auditory based. School by nature is auditory based. And then if you're struggling in this area, wow, like how hard would that be? It would be incredibly difficult. And so we have to be mindful that a lot of our kids, even in a general education classroom, Kids that aren't ours might be struggling with this and they need more time to process and we have to slow it down no matter how hard that is. We know that we're busy. We know we only have 30 minutes and we have so much to get in, but we have to slow down. We have to give them time to think, give them time to process information. Um, in my reading series that I did a couple of seasons ago, I talked about think time. Use think time. We can't just bombard kids with information and then expect them to spit out an answer right away. We have to give them time to think. And if we don't, we might see behaviors. We might see regression. We might see lack of progress. And we could chalk it up to so many things. Oh, he never pays attention to me. Oh, he doesn't try hard. He doesn't do, she doesn't do, this is her behavior, you know, all the excuses. But what if it's just the pace of that classroom is too fast? It's too much. 
and I really feel like I'm like standing high and mighty on my soapbox here, okay? And I am not perfect. I, I know I'm not. I am so guilty of rush, 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 rush. We've got so much to do, so much to do, but we have to slow down. And um, right before I hit record on this episode, I was searching and I'm going to keep searching and see if I can find it. Actually, I might have to message an old principal of mine that I had for my first year of teaching. And she gave me a website that is basically a simulation of somebody with an auditory perceptual disability. And they're struggling or I, while doing it, was struggling to sort out information that is happening in the, you know, the, there's the teacher giving instructions and then there's all the noise that's in the classroom. And hearing what I'm supposed to hear is so distracting and so fast, I can't keep up with what the teacher's asking me to do. And that simulation was so eye-opening that I'm like, well, geez Louise, when I'm going 100 miles per hour and the average kid is hanging with me, what about all these kids who might be struggling in this area? And these are the kids who might be saying, what? Huh? And they're just buying themselves some think time. I am guilty of this even where I, my husband will say, what do you want for dinner? And I'm like, hmm. And I'm still thinking, what does he want? What am I going to say? What do I want for dinner? Well, you know, Chick-fil-A sounds pretty good. That is buying themselves think time. They heard they're just still processing that information. So look for kids who are saying, huh? What? And they know the answer. They're just still thinking about what to say. They're still thinking, what did she ask me? Oh, okay. This is what I'm going to tell her. It's hard, but we have to slow ourselves down. I also think it's really important as a strategy or as kind of a coping skill we have to teach kids to ask for information repeated, to ask for us to slow down. I've actually been working on this with one of my second graders because he was one who would sit with nothing done and I would tell him like, honey, you're good at this. You can write this down. He's like, I just didn't know. I just didn't hear. And I think what he was trying to tell me at that time was you're going too fast. I can't keep up, but he didn't have the words for that. And so he has lately, we've been working on, can you slow down? Can you repeat that? Things that he's more advocating for himself. He's telling me exactly what he needs. And you know what? Some days I want to be like, I don't have time, but I can't. It's okay, buddy. I'm sorry. And even lately he's been saying, you're reading too fast. Okay. Thank you. Like, I don't know what is too fast unless you let me know what is too fast. And he's also in my room during a time where we have four other groups going on. So he's sitting there struggling to focus on what I'm saying because we have four other groups, four other adult voices, as well as kids talking back, answering questions, you know, all those things, participating, doing what they're supposed to do. But that's all background noise that now his brain has to filter out. Okay, I'm not listening to Mrs. Boggs at the other table or Mrs. Wright at the other table. I'm not listening to the student who is saying, you know, oh, but we don't have to do that or no, I'm not, you know, I, we don't have to listen to all those things. All he has to listen to is me 
but that's hard. Or he's trying to listen to the student who sits over there and basically whisper reads out loud, or it's covered by their mask, or all those things. That's hard to differentiate. That's hard to focus his brain. And we're working on those things. So to me, one strategy is some self-advocacy, some speaking up for yourself and letting the people around you know, I'm not getting it. You're going too fast for me. I can't follow along if you read that fast. Things like that. And that's hard. And it takes them some time to notice that as well. And as I admittedly said, it took me time to notice that he's not not doing something on purpose. There's a reason. So as we know, behavior is communication. He's trying to tell me something and that something is, Mrs. Wilk goes too fast for me. We've got to slow down. So that's a hard one. And that's my last and final strategy. And I put that one last because think of how busy we are Think of how auditory heavy we are at school and then think about the kid who's never going to speak up for themselves or doesn't know that it's okay for me to speak up if I do it in the right way. If I practice it in a really good setting so that I can tell my classroom teacher or my new teacher next year, sometimes the teacher goes too fast and I need you to slow down or having a hand signal or a gesture. None of those things are easy for some of our kids to do, but we have to practice that. So just something to be aware of. Now, I know that that information is a lot. This is heavy, heavy stuff, but it's definitely something that we need to hear. We need to have top of mind and we need to be looking at what our students are doing and what is this telling us about their brain? What is this telling us about how they process information? And then how can we help them? We know that it's difficult. We know that maybe this is not typical. What can we do? Now, in next week's episode, we are going to talk about motor and spatial perceptual difficulties and talk again, kind of what you might see and then what you can do. How can you help your students in that specific area? So I will see you next week as we talk about motor and spatial difficulties. Well, my friend, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the Resource Room Podcast. I truly, truly love to help and support other special ed teachers. Because of that, I run a Facebook group just for us. Search the Resource Room and request to join. You can also check out my website, theprimarygal.com, for blog posts, pictures, and more information. Until next time, have a great week.